Thank you, Rich and music team. Um, you guys are too kind. Ministry is a mercy um, to anyone who is anyone who's saved. That's a mercy, but ministry is a double mercy. Don't deserve um, shepherd the shepherd the church. I uh, don't deserve you guys, and you guys are a thrill and a joy to shepherd. So I love every second of it, even when it's hard. Um, so, well, we're back in our study tonight on marriage, like Rich said, and it's a joy to be back this week. Like he mentioned, we were at a conference for most of the week, Monday through today, and we got back in. Rich was with us, and we had a blast, but we are loving, to be, loving being home, loving being with you guys, so this is the highlight of our week. Um. Well, if you remember back to last week, let's get this off the, there we go. Ah! Okay, out of there. All right. If you remember back to last week, we uh, are working our way back into the book of Ephesians after our, well, like an eternal break. Um, we started a series on marriage last week because our, our next, or yeah, last week we started the series on marriage because our next text in Ephesians is Paul's instructions to wives and husbands. That's where we left off. But before we are jumping into those instructions, what we tried to do last week, and what we're going to attempt to do again this week, is to give you a broader framework of what the Bible says about marriage, just generally. You can think of what we're doing as a, as a mini-series mini in marriage, and we're kind of springboarding out of Ephesians, and we're going to land back in Ephesians um, when we're... Well, I guess next week. So, last week we looked at what we were calling um, the essence of the marriage relationship. Right? You guys remember that? So, we asked the question, what is marriage? Kind of basic, but always helpful. Don't assume anything, right? What is it? If you had to reduce it down to its sort of essentials, what would it be? And what do, you, do you remember? A friendship. Right, a friendship. Marriage is a, a covenant of companionship with a member of the opposite sex, or, like we said, just simply, a friendship. Now, that friendship is characterized by several things, and that was where we spent the majority of our time last week. What were those things? What kind of friendship is it? A romantic friendship, and a passionately romantic friendship. Song of Solomon shows us that very clearly, so we looked at that. And we looked at where passion and romance flows from. Where does it flow from? Remember? Okay, the depth of their friendship that springs from their knowledge of one another and the depth of their character, their Christ-likeness. So, biblical desire that's God-honoring and passionate and romantic is springing up out of a deep knowledge of each other in an observation of, of, of the Christ-likeness of the other. That's exactly what we saw last week. So it's passionately romantic friendship. It's not, it's not only romantic, but this friendship is what else? It is a complementary friendship. But the other word we used was diverse friendship. And what do we mean by that? Okay, that's good. Men and women are different. They are. Believe it or not, no matter what the culture tells you, no matter what evangelicalism tells you, they are different, we are different, and we have different roles in the relationship. 
A marriage is made up of, of two very different people who have different roles within the relationship, both husband and wife have incredible strengths and limitations. And for a marriage to work, both of them need to embrace their God-given roles and seek to live within them. Husbands, I hammered you, or soon-to-be husbands, I hammered you uh, last week on your need to lead. Don't worry, I'm not going to yell at you again this week, I don't think. And wives, God's called you to support or help, or soon-to-be wives, aspiring wives. And we looked at this in depth last week, so I'm not going to even get back into that. But it's a complementary friendship. It's diverse, meaning they're not the same. God's created roles to be worked out. And finally, this friendship is what? Our third, third point from last week. Is a unified friendship. And it's not, it's not just unified, it's profoundly unified. It's profoundly unified. Both husband and wife are equal in essence before the Lord. Because why? They're made in the image of God. Both, male and female. Equal in essence. And when a marriage happens, the two become one flesh. That's what Genesis 2 says. They share unity in bodies, yeah, So we typically hear one flesh, we think sex, and that's good. But unity goes way beyond just sex. They're to be unified around the Lord. They're to be unified in in His purposes. Unified in thoughts and plans. This is the essence of what the Bible calls a one flesh union of man and woman. So that raises another question, and a very important question, and it's going to take up the entirety of our time tonight. And that question is, What is the mission that the husband and wife are to be unified around? Make sense? Like, what are are we supposed to be pursuing together in this marriage relationship? What's marriage about? So if we asked last last week, what is it? Now, what is it about? What's this friendship for? Well, most of the time, when we think about dating and marriage... We get excited, and rightly so, because we realize that getting married or dating unto marriage, okay, so if you're, you're unclear about what dating is, we did a whole series on that too, so, um, and it's in a little ebook format on our website, so you can get that, go through it, go through it with Rich, he's the man, or Christy, she's the woman, <laughs> in a complimentary friendship of marriage. Um, just ramming it, ramming it home, you know. So most of the time we get excited because we, we realize that getting married could fulfill a lot of our deep desires. And God-given desires. We don't like being alone. In fact, God said it's not good for man to be alone in Genesis 2. We love the idea of companionship and sex. We get excited about settling down. As you mature a little bit, you're like, yeah, I could... Settle down. Kind of like thinking about, well, maybe I could get a job, buy a house, have some kids. Like that stuff starts to get exciting to you as you mature. But often we, we really don't pause and ask the question, what, what is it all about? Why did God create it in the first place? Instead, I think what happens is unintentionally, we sell marriage short. And in the end, we come up empty. 
Because we make it about some of these lesser things that are good. But we make those lesser things the ultimate thing. Companionship, as we saw last week, is a wonderful blessing, but it's not ultimate. Kids are incredible, but they are not to be lived for. Sex is beautiful, but it can't sustain a mission. Okay, It's not the end goal. It's not the ultimate mission of marriage. So what is it? What's it all about? Well, this is not going to be a, a shocker to you. Okay, This is very simple. But how it unfolds might be interesting. Marriage is about the furthering of God's mission in the world. So what's the mission of marriage? It's the mission of God. Its goal is the advance of God's agenda on earth. That's why he created it in the first place. So tonight, what I want to do is take a quick survey of Scripture, really, I mean, like we did last week. We camped in Genesis 1 and 2 and and 3. We'll do the same thing again this week, but I want, I want this week's focus to be on mission. And then we'll, we'll launch from there and maybe do a biblical theology of, of this theme. So what we've got to do tonight is we've got to figure out exactly what this mission entails and then how marriage fits into it. Make sense? What the mission is and, and what it entails and how marriage works itself into this mission. And how we think about that today in in our current stage of salvation history. So, where we're, where we're going is, is we're going to see this mission unfolds um, in five stages. Oh, six stages. Just kidding. In six stages. <laughs> so, okay. As Rich alluded to, if this message is a little disjointed, it's because I wrote it very early in the morning over multiple days, and I don't write my sermons that way. So I study, I study like, the well is deep, right? I'll study hours and hours and hours the first half of the week, and then Thursday, today, starting at the beginning of the day, I write that thing. Okay, and then I edit it, I write it, and I edit it, and then, and then what you get is that, is that process on Thursday. I don't write it over multiple days, and that's what I, that's what I did today, or that's what I did for this one. I didn't have any time this week. So, sorry, on the front end. So, it is six stages of God's mission. Trust the PowerPoint. All right, stage number one. Whoa, mission established. Genesis 1 and 2, mission established. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis 1 and 2. This is where it starts. And it is um, the mission, it's where we see it, it's where you see it established. So, God's mission for the world, his purpose really for the world and humanity, is actually described in seed form at the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. As we're going to see, marriage is pivotal to this mission, at least in its establishment. You hear that caveat? It's pivotal to the mission in its, at its inception, at its, at its establishment. Now, this immediately raises questions, right? Like, well, what, what about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 about singleness? It refers to everybody's single, like him. Like, it doesn't sound like marriage is central to the mission of God in that statement. You're right, and we're going to get there. But let's pigeonhole that for a second, and let's come back to it later on once we've got more Bible under our belt. All right, so first, let's go to Genesis 1 and 2 and let Moses, who's the author, shape our vision of God's original blueprint for marriage. 
So initially, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of give you a couple of um, summaries of maybe the purpose of man, and then we're gonna, I'm going to try to bring it together for you at, at the end of this point. So, what's, what's mankind, what's humankind all about in the beginning of this story? We could summarize it, at least in the beginning, as representing God. We're made in the image of God, and we represent God as such. So, if you would, just look with me at... Oh, let me back up. Again, I said this is disjointed. Genesis 1 is like God setting the stage for creation. It's like creation at a, at a high level. You've got the first three days, and they correspond to the last three days. And the last day, day six, is the pinnacle of God's creation. It's like the grand finale. And the grand finale... He creates the only creatures that are made in his image. And those are human beings. Psalm 8, if you write that down, talks about the glory and dignity of man as created in the image of God. And it's even, and that's like very interesting because it's post-fall, and it's still man is, is in a dignified state because he is made in the very image of God. Look in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, and male and female, he created them. And we'll stop there for now. So, he he creates man in his image. So, as the pinnacle... Of creation, being created in His image means we're fundamentally like God. We're the physical representation of God. I mean, that sounds crazy, okay, to say it that way. But that's the this I, this word for image is is the word that's commonly used for idol, which is a physical representation of a of a deity. Except we're alive, we're not God, but we represent Him. We're made in His image. We're patterned after Him to reflect what He is like to the world. To meet man, to meet humanity, is to encounter, in some sense, God. Because we represent Him. You can see right out of the gate the dignity of of this creature that God makes here in in day six. And so if we, if we could use different terminology, you see this up here. God is the father of humanity, and humans are his sons, or sonship, sons and daughters, created in his likeness to, to represent him. And if you, were to, if you were to transition, just keep your finger in Genesis 1 and flip over to Genesis 5, and look in the first verse, you see this, this connection between image and likeness and sonship. Genesis 5.1 says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female had created them, and he blessed them, and he named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. It's like the author of Genesis is being explicit here in that the image of God is passed on 
through the image of Adam, like he's stamping that on future generations. So, it, the, my point is, this image of God is tied up with this concept of, of sonship that you're going to see later in the Bible. Just, just log that away. Okay, so we, gotta, we have to move so fast, because this is one of six, okay? We've got to go quick. So, we, we represent God. Mission of man. We're in his image. We're to reign for God. Reign for God. And the, other, the, the, the tag word, the theme, biblical theme on that is kingship. We are royal image bearers. Humanity is regal. We reign for God. Where do you see that, Clay? Well, we're given this delegated authority, and that's bound up in this word dominion. Verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. That is, a, that is kingship terminology. Different authors have put it different ways, but we are like vice regents, like his, his delegated authority on earth to rule the earth and subdue it um, for his purposes. And notice it's, it's over comprehensively, everything God has created. And again, he repeats that again in verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the, the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. And he goes on. So, just notice a few things here. This dominion is worldwide in scope. Let them have dominion over the earth. All the earth over every created thing. It's, it's cosmic in scope. And in verse 28, it, it becomes obvious that the way humans are to take dominion, or at least something that's connected to it, is through the increase of humanity. Right? So be fruitful and multiply, it says here. And it's, it's bound up, it's, it's tightly connected to the dominion idea. So we reign as we multiply and fill the earth with other image bearers that are regal and reigning for God. It means we have more children who are also in the image of God, who reflect God perfectly, who live in perfect communion with God, who trust Him, who worship Him implicitly. As God's image bearers increase, so does the extent of His, God's, dominion over creation through His humans. And notice that God's blessing is upon humanity. It's his blessing to fulfill this task of multiplication and dominion. It means that from the outset, God is committed to empowering humans, his covenant partners, to fulfill his mission. To say it another way, the mission is only fulfilled through the empowerment of the Lord through his blessing. It's key. That's, what it, that's, that's the essence of blessing. And the whole world is under it, Genesis 1. So, that's sub-point number two. We, not only do we represent God, we also reign for God in kingship. And again, you're going to see that theme through the scriptures. But we also, third, this is the last one, we, I'm calling this, we reside with God. We reside with God. And, and this is part of the mission, as you're going to see. We dwell with God. And the theme here that you're going to see through Scripture is priesthood. Priesthood. 
Again, I'm not really unpacking those terms. I'm, what I'm doing is I'm giving you categories that as you read your Bible, you're not going to have to like, erase the categories. You're going to say, ah, oh, like that fits there. Ah, oh, that fits there. Ah, oh, that fits there. As you work through, because that's, how, that's what Genesis is intended to do. It's intended to give you the categories. The rest of Scripture isn't going to fill in. So, residing with God is, is a part of the purpose of humanity. And boy, we could, this could be like a couple messages, but I'm going to not do that. All right? The second story of Genesis starts in chapter 2, verse 4. And it's sort of another narration of creation. So you're like, okay, well, there was already one of those. So now there's another one. And it's starting in chapter 2, verse 4. It's because its purpose is different. It's wanting to show you something else. Moses is wanting to show you something else about about man and about what, what our role is. And it's structured around this garden idea. Starts at the garden at the beginning of the story, and it ends in expulsion from the garden at the end of the story. So it's all about this garden. And this garden is very special. Garden of Eden, Garden of Delights. God plants the garden, and he puts man in the garden. And I'm just going to say this because I, I really don't have time to defend it, and I hate doing that, but this garden is significant because it's God's sacred space. And it's where he is. So the difference between Genesis, a difference between Genesis 1 and 2 is Genesis 1, you get like this sort of awe of God who creates like out of nothing. You start shaping like universes and different things and it's just, it's magisterial. In Genesis 2, it's almost as though God is pictured as a man. He's rolling up his sleeves. He's, he's forming the dirt, the dust, forming Adam, breathing into his being. Later, he's going to be coming in the garden. He's going to be walking through the trees of the garden. They're going to hear him coming. and they're going to hide. It's intimate. And that's the point of Genesis 2, is it's intimate. The garden is where he lives. It's where God dwells. It's his special residence. And there's so much more we could, <laughs> so many more things we could say about that uh, to defend that statement. I can talk to you later about it if you want. But the human beings are tasked, look in verse 15, specifically, the man is tasked with guarding, uh, excuse me, um, verse, where are we at? 15. Yeah, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So again, there's mission language. What's he supposed to do? It's to work and keep the garden. What does that mean? Well, work the garden is pretty obvious in that he's to cultivate this garden. The garden's where the fruit trees are. It's where the food is. And this garden is cultivated space. God planted it. And it's not the whole earth. It's just a garden. So he's to cultivate this garden, which I think also implies that it would include... Uh, developing the garden and extending its borders. Because guess what he's supposed to do? He's supposed to have sex with his wife and have lots of kids. So they're all, all going to need food. And the garden's where the food is. So he, he's going to extend the space. I think that's all bound up in this word to work the garden. And then he's supposed to keep the garden. What does that mean? It means in Hebrew he has charge of the garden. It's like he's, he's the caretaker. And this would include, among many things, Knowing what the deadly tree is, the tree that's going to kill them, and keeping people away from that tree. 
Notice what he says next. The Lord God, verse 16, commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And that tree is sitting right in the middle of the garden, according to earlier in the story, right next to the tree of life. And he says, don't eat that tree, because it will kill you. So to be a caretaker of the garden, to keep the garden, would at a minimum mean Adam knows the commands of God, make sure these commands are understood and obeyed, so that the garden is not polluted with sin, the garden is not defiled. Do you see priesthood? See some, if you know your Bible, like you can kind of see themes. So Adam, humanity, is to, to reside with God in intimate communion with Him and preserve its purity, preserve the purity of the dwelling of God. Now, interestingly, this, these verbs to work and to keep, those verbs will reappear. This is the only exegetical detail I'll give you. Those words will reappear in the Levitical priesthood for what the Levitical priests are to do. They're to work and keep the temple, and or in that case, the tabernacle, and then later the temple. So these, there's lots of connections because the temple, tabernacle, is God's sacred space. Israel is God's sacred land. So let's pull back. I told you I was going to synthesize. We're still on point number one. The rest will go faster, promise. At creation, God intended His faithful image bearers to increase and mediate his reign, number two, and his presence over all creation. You see that? God intended his faithful image bearers to increase and mediate his reign and presence over all creation. To put it a little differently, God intends his glory radiating from his image displayed in man. God intends His glory to fill the earth through the increase of His image bearers who trust Him, who worship Him, who commune with Him, who serve Him, who reign for Him, and enjoy Him forever. That is the foundational mission statement of Scripture. To say it in the language of Numbers 14, it's to cover the earth with the glory of God. This shows us then that, that, out, that at the outset that the marriage relationship ultimately points outside itself. You see that? It points a, away from itself in that its goal is to fulfill God's mission on earth. And what a responsibility for humans. Lots well, riding on us, so to speak and what God's tasked us to do. He doesn't need us, but He's chosen to fulfill his, to bring His kingdom to earth and His reign on earth through the faithfulness of a son, a king, and a priest. Or sons, kings, and priests. I.e. humanity. See where this is going. Now, Again, just to underscore this, that just said it, but the key to the mission is the faithfulness of humans. And I know I'm kind of getting, I, I might make some of you feel uncomfortable when I say that, but just hear me out. 
Because God's glory needs to spread through them as they have kids, and they need to perfectly reflect him so their kids perfectly reflect him. They need to guard that tree and not let anyone eat of it so that they can eat of the tree of life, confirm their godliness and their, their fellowship with God. They don't want that to be disrupted, but we know where this goes, right? <laughs> Literally, in the very next chapter, God's mission is severely threatened, and I'm just going to call this second stage the mission complicated. Genesis 3. The mission complicated. As we all know too well, our first parents didn't trust the Lord or obey Him, and no one has ever since. In the, the at birth. The creation charter, God's purpose, was threatened almost at its inception. Adam and Eve transgressed the command only, uh, the only command given to them, and a number of complications ensued out of that transgression. And what I want you to see is the way that the Genesis is laid out. They directly correspond to the mission. The complications correspond to the mission. So I'm just going to point out a few of those. All right, sin number one: sin mars the image of God. Sin mars the image of God. So you, you, you get a glimpse of this in the interchange between the woman and the serpent. He begins to deceive her about what God has actually said. And then in verse 4, he just outright denies what God has said. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, catch this, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, the irony in this is that human beings are the only thing created like God in like all of the all of the world. They're the only ones capable of actually reflecting the glory of God in creation to that degree of being in the likeness of God, being described that way. Genesis 1. But the temptation here is that, that through sin, Eve would be more like God than she already is. In fact, she would be able to rival God. She would be able to cross that ontological distinction between creature and creator. And obviously, this is a lie. There is no life outside of trusting God. There's only death. Only death. That's it. Because all things come from the triune God. And the opposite of what Satan says actually happens. Sin complicates our ability to represent God. It doesn't erase the image of God, but it bends it and it warps it. After they ate the fruit, they didn't step into this new and beautiful world of self-actualization and God-likeness. That's not what happened. Instead, they became incredibly aware of their shame. Notice what it says in after they ate. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, so that part was true, but it was opened to the horror of what they had become. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So they, they tried to cover themselves up because they were ashamed of what they had become. So they didn't become like God. They became hideous creatures bent on cruelty and self-destruction. 
So in a sense, sin complicates the mission by marring the image of God. But it doesn't completely obliterate it. It doesn't turn people into animals. We're still humans. And humans always image God, as we were going to see. And, and we will be able to grow in imaging God through repentance and faith in a moment, but it doesn't obliterate the image, although it mars it. Next, sin separates us from God's presence. Sin separates us from God's presence. The first thing the couple do in relation to God is hide from Him. It's the first thing they do. So, the way this text lays out, verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. It's almost as though, like, it's what He always does. And He's coming to find the man and the woman to commune with them. And they hide behind the trees of the garden. They hid from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But God's not going to allow that. He calls them out and begins this interchange. But my point, I just want to show you that sin immediately drives people away in fear from God. It disrupts fellowship. It separates us from His presence. These people who just moments ago implicitly trusted, communed, and walked with, the, with God in intimate fellowship no longer are able to do that. And look at how this story ends. Verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So that's what the tree of life does. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. He drove the man from the sacred space. To put it in other terms, he exiled humans from his sacred space. And he put an an angel guarding the way back to it. That's another theme, by the way. Angels guarding the sacred space. Think of the, what's woven into the, the veil in the temple and tabernacle. Our cherubim. Um, oh, a lot on that. Not going to go there. Okay. Sin, also third, brings suffering in dominion. And it, complica- it complicates dominion, but in particular, what, what he draws out in this text is it's there is pain, pain in the dominion mandate. Meaning, I think, it's going to be very hard and there's going to be a lot of cost. A lot of cost to taking dominion the way God intends. Let me stitch that together for you. So after, they, after God brings them out, draws them out, they start blaming one another and kind of ultimately kind of gets back to the serpent as the, the root cause here of the sin. Then the Lord said in verse 14, he begins to, to dole out judgments and curses um, in, this, in this 
judgment, this, these the more complications for, for what's happened. So, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Key in, I will put enmity, enmity, that word, that's underlined, that's our, that's our suffering word, enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring, so the snake's going to have babies, between your offspring and her offspring. What's it going to put between those offsprings? Enmity. What is enmity? It's war. The serpent, in other words, is going to be chasing the woman and her children. And his children are going to be chasing her children to kill them. He, he says in verse 15, one of this offspring shall bruise your head and you, the snake, shall bruise his heel. Woo, there's a lot here. One little observation is offspring can be plural or it can be singular. And both are intended. Okay? Both are intended. So just log that away. Because it's, it's, it's plural, and the one, the one idea, in between you and the woman, so there's the this, this singularity of it, and then between your offspring, so descendants, and her offspring, descendants, and then it goes back to the singular. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there's this interplay between a collective offspring, a people, and an offspring, a singular person, a son, okay, in this unfolding drama of Scripture. So this means that throughout history, the snake and its offspring are, are going to oppress the woman and her offspring, and the battle for dominion will involve suffering. It will be difficult. Okay? Observation. Now notice out what else? To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. That's irony. She's supposed to multiply children, and he's saying, I'm going to multiply your pain. I'm going to multiply your pain and this word is so interesting for childbearing, and I don't think it should be translated that way. I think it should be translated, um, I will surely multiply your pain in conception. Huh? Like, pain in conception? Like, conception is pleasurable. Like, that's the sexual act, right? What does this mean? Pain in conception. And then he, he, he double, just hold that. That's a legitimate question. In pain shall you bring forth children... Okay, so there's the other side of it, I think, is like what we all know, or we, what half the human population knows, what the rest of us are glad we don't know, um, is the pain, the physical pain that it, it costs to bring forth children. Now, what does this other thing mean? Pain in conception, I think, is referring to emotional pain of barrenness, of the difficulty of conception to fulfill the mandate. And guess what you see through Genesis? Every matriarch is barren. You tracking? So we don't want to just change the word like they do in the ESV. It means conception. So we need to stay with that because the rest of, the, the rest of Genesis is going to unfold what this pain in conception is. And it's, it's the threat of barrenness to the plan of God. So... That's 
what that means. And then notice again, um, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So there's going to be strife in the marriage relationship. That's the essence of that. Wives are going to try to control their husbands and sometimes the husbands are either going to be passive, like Abraham, when he listens to the voice of his wife, Sarah, and marries Hagar, which is a bad move, and conceives Ishmael, really bad move. It's going to cost them lots of pain in the future. Um, so that's passivity. Or, on the other side of that, it's going to be abusive. He's going to lord his authority over the wife. He's going to rule her in that abusive way because she's, seeking, she's desiring him. Her desire is for him, meaning she's trying to control him, which is not her, that's not her lane. So the point is that these roles are going to be like just torqued. It's going to be hard. In the, in the companionship, it's, it's hard because of sin. And every husband and wife in here say, yes, it is. So there's strife in the marriage relationship. And notice at the end of here with Adam, there is pain in work and difficulty in in dominion. He says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread. He goes on and talks about ultimately the death that's going to ensue. So the point I just want want you to see here is there's going to be pain and toil, pain and work, and the ground is cursed. So what do you see in Genesis? Famine. Famine, and lots of it. Life is threatened because of famine, and the ground is difficult and it's painful, and so dominion is going to be hard. Sin brings suffering in this dominion, this cause to, to take dominion. And I think that's the point. And that's super important to see. Okay? We've been in uh, Ecclesiastes. I think the right E word. I want to say Ephesians. We've been in Ecclesiastes, or we were in Ecclesiastes last year, and we saw the effects of the curse on Sunday mornings. Super helpful, but it starts here. And the major development, okay, in this second point is that the mission isn't nullified. I want you to see that. The mission's not nullified, although we're left wondering how it's going to be fulfilled or restored back to its original glory. As it stands, it looks as though things are going to limp along. Like, how, how is this going to be fulfilled like we saw in the beginning? Image bearers are now riddled with sin. Marriage in its original mission is going to be tough. We can still fulfill the mission of marriage, but it will involve much pain or suffering. However, we are given a glimpse or several glimpses of tremendous hope that things are not going to stay this way. So we're calling this third point, the mission assured. The mission assured. If it's not obvious to you by now, it should be, that the mission now is, yes, it it, sort of hinges on humans, but like humans are terrible. So it, it's, it's now, it hinges on the mercy of God and his power and his faithfulness and his commitment to see the whole earth full of his glory and blessing. So it's, it's hinging on him and his power to bring it about in the face of this human rebellion, but, he, but he's, still, he's still sort of bound himself, if you will, to the faithfulness of man. So, maybe we should say the faithfulness of a man. So in a sense, 
It's both needs to be of God. God's got to do it, but a man's got to do it. And there are several assurances in this passage that God's plans are going to stand. And not only will he continue his mission, but that he's going to bring about the reversal of the sinful, cursed situation that that they're in. And I just want to point out two of them. There's a promise of offspring. 3.15. Promise isn't really the right word, but that's what I'm calling it. It's, it's It's a judgment on the snake. Which to us, it's nice. It's a good promise. So not only is there enmity, but there's, there's a promise of more children. Even though they just sinned and death's going to come. And there's an offspring who is going to deal a, a death blow to the snake as he's bitten. Is that the right way to say that? On his heel. Okay? Heel's bruised, but the head's bruised to the snake. So there's a difference there. And that's Intentional. So he's gonna he's gonna take dominion by bruising by dealing the death blow, a headshot to the snake. That's how you kill a snake, is you crush its head. And but snakes bite you. They bite you on the heel. So there's there's gonna be suffering is gonna happen, but there's gonna be a death blow to the head of the snake. And when Eve had her first son Cain, she knew Eve knew that the Lord had mercifully helped her overcome the curse on its, and, and, and kind of bring it on its way to fulfillment. Look in chapter 4, verse 1. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Sounds a little cavemanish, but nonetheless, I don't think that humans were cavemen. Caveat that. Don't think that. Okay, back to the... It's trying to be funny, and it wasn't. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So my point is she sees the Lord's involvement in her conception and that his mercy is driving that. Um, She also has another son, Abel, and what we see in the story is something very incredible. We learn that the offspring of the snake, we just saw about, the offspring of the snake that's going to be at enmity with the offspring of the woman is actually a human being. It's not a baby snake. It's a human. It's Cain. Cain resembles the serpent in this story, and he jealously murders his brother. And if you have any doubts about that interpretation, take it up with the Apostle John, because John himself connects these dots, if you want to write it down, in John 8.44, in the words of Jesus, in John, 1 John 3.12. John 8.44, 1 John 3.12 connects the dots between Satan operating in and through Cain as his offspring to do his work. He says he was, he calls Satan a murderer from the beginning. A murderer from the beginning in this connection with Cain. Jesus does that in John 8. As a result, okay, as a result of this murder, he is cursed very similar to the serpent. So up to this point, no human being has been cursed. Only the ground has been cursed, and the snake. But now, Cain is cursed. And he leaves the Lord's presence and has his own descendants, as we see in chapter 4. And these descendants, like, take over. And they also resemble the serpent, and it culminates in Lamech, who kills a dude just for, like, offending him, punching him or whatever. And it's kind of like, this is really out of control. 
and they're the shapers of culture. It's super interesting. Put all that aside. Now, you're probably asking, okay, how is this um, an assurance of the mission, Clay? Like, this is, this is bad. Well, notice verse 25 in chapter 4. Adam knew his wife again, means he had intercourse with, his, with her again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another, keyword, offspring. Instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So, God gives her another offspring, which is that key word from Genesis 3.15, who would continue this line of the woman. In other words, she supplied another child who's going to be in the line of the one who will deal the death blow to the snake and all the descendants of the snake, i.e. Cain and his lineage. That's what she's getting at here at the end of the chapter. Now, that's an assurance in the promise of offspring, but there's another assurance in this text, and it's, it's that the mission is assured, and it can, it can be recovered, and actually recovered mercifully well through the fear of God. It can be recovered through the fear of God. Notice... Seth and his descendants, notice what's associated with him in verse 26. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. What does that mean? That's a phrase for worship. So for these image bearers who are riddled with sin, and all they do is hide from God, now they're calling on his name. Meaning, they've owned their sin and they're turning to him for mercy. And that is associated with the line of Seth. So, my point is that, is that that means these folks are returning to the Lord in repentance and faith, or in another word of summary, the way I put it this way, is that through the fear of God, like they, they know God exists, they fear him, they reverence him, they worship him, and they turn to him. Now, this is an assurance because the way out of the curse... The way out is by returning in repentance to the Lord. Which means the way to restore our marriages is, and the mission of our marriage is through calling on the name and, and fearing the Lord. And even by the end of this fourth chapter of Genesis, we see this in seed form. And later in the Old Testament, it's, it becomes crystal clear that those who fear the Lord by faith have, have blessing on their family. Psalm 128. You can write that down. Husbands, men, the very beginning of that phrase is that blessed is the man who fears the Lord. His wife will be like a fruitful vine. His children will be like olive shoots around his table. His work, is he's going to eat the work of his hands. You hear that? That's the reversal of the curse. And it all happens through the man who fears the Lord. Psalm 128. Proverbs 31 for the wives. This lady and all she does and the virtue, it all comes from her fear of the Lord. Her children rise up and call her blessed because she fears God. And she's a grace to her husband. She benefits him, Proverbs 31, because of this thing we see right here in Genesis 4, that humans begin to call upon the name of the Lord. So the mission, we're assured that the mission is recovered in some sense through the fear of God. Again, I'm just laying categories for you. Even though humanity is under a curse, the mission isn't fully thwarted. It will continue through the faithful 
God-fearing offspring or descendants of the woman. Through suffering and difficulty? Yes. But eventually, a particular offspring of the woman will deal a head-crushing blow to the snake after the snake has bruised his heel. His victory over the snake implies a reversal of the curse and a restoration of, you ready for it? Creation. Creation. And so as this mission continues, we hear echoes of it. Like we hear it in the Bible. And sometimes, we, not only do we hear echoes, but we hear direct repetitions of this very language in Genesis. And it happens in very special places in the Bible. Very pivotal places in Scripture. The mission stays the same in essence, you can think, but, but as it unfolds, more details are added to it. And we might even say it develops richly through the Old Testament. So I'm calling my next point, mission developed. And I will talk as fast as I can. So, <laughs> this mission is developed through covenant families. Where do we see these repetitions and developments of the mission? The developments happen when God gives covenants to members and families of the offspring of Eve in the line of Seth. So, side note, how many of you have read Genesis? Good. How many of you have noticed the genealogies? How many of you have been like, why are there genealogies in Genesis? Everywhere. Well, guess what? That's tracking for you. The offspring of Eve and its continuance. Not only that, but that's the major thing that it's doing. So, the point, you're going to see this genealogy happening. You're going to see these, these people coming out of this lineage. And then at key points, key people of that lineage, God's going to come to them and make covenants with His image bearers. So you think, Noah who's a descendant of Seth, in the Noahic covenant. You think of Abraham, which is the big one. They're all big. And they all successively build on one another. Abraham and his sons after him in the Abrahamic covenant, then the covenant with the nation of Israel, typically called the Mosaic covenant, but it's really the covenant with the nation of Israel after he delivers them from Egypt. And then finally the covenants with David and his royal dynasty, the Davidic covenant and his sons. In all these covenants, we hear echoes of the original creation charter. There are developments to be sure, but the point that we're to take away is that God's mission is continuing to advance through each successive covenant. That's like the very key sentence I just read. The developments are happening, but the point is that God's mission is continuing to advance through each successive covenant. And I have a whole section I'm going to leave out right now because I am way behind. And, and I'll give you a teaser. In 1 Kings 3 and 4, Solomon, the, the son of David, the mission in the Old Testament is at its apex. Like it's, it's real close. Solomon, instead of God comes in a dream. So what do you want? And he says, I'm a baby. I don't know how to govern this, these people. I need wisdom. 
wisdom to discern between good and evil. Because I don't have it. I lost it at the fall. So God gives him wisdom. And wisdom that surpasses everybody. Okay? Like, nobody has the wisdom like Solomon has. And his reign shows it. And it is unreal what happened as a result of the blessing of God on Israel. It says that Israel multiplied like crazy. They were more than the sand of the seashore, which itself was evocative of the Abrahamic covenant. In the same paragraph, in 1 Kings, the writer tells us that Solomon had dominion over the earth. And that's a rare word, okay, for any Hebrew people out there. That word is only used a couple times, and it's in key spots, and guess where it's at? Genesis 1. And it says he has dominion over the earth. And then Solomon even builds a temple in Jerusalem, sacred space, evocative of the Garden of Eden. It's got palm trees. It's got all kinds of things. It's meant to draw you back to the Garden of Eden. God's presence powerfully fills the temple in in 1 Kings 8, which means he's come to reside again with his people. But right as his kingdom is climaxing, Solomon goes AWOL. Like, I literally don't know how to explain this. But Solomon breaks everything that Deuteronomy 17 said not to do for a king. He amasses gold, he amasses chariots from Egypt, and he amasses um, foreign wives. That's the, that's the three things in Deuteronomy 17 that Moses wrote down that God said, you don't do that as a king of Israel, or I will curse you. And it's like right after he builds the temple, he does all three of those things. Solomon falls. Israel divides, and that leads to their, you guessed it, expulsion from the land. Who else was expelled from a land? Adam and Eve. So now we're back in a similar spot. God's people begin to wonder if God's mission had failed. Israel was decimated, slaughtered. She wasn't fruitful or multiplying. Israel's kings were dethroned. She certainly didn't have dominion anymore. And in exile, it appeared that the seed of the serpent had won. But he had not. While the people were in exile, God made some incredible promises. He promised that he would bring the nation back together again. He would raise up a new David. He would invoke a new covenant. He would forgive the people of their sins forever. And he would give them his own spirit to make them obedient. Image bearers. In a word, he's going to do all this through the descendant. Through the offspring, he promised. Who would, through suffering, Isaiah 53, deal the death blow? His name and begin the new creation. So the mission, number five, is restored. And this is exactly what we see in the opening of the New Testament. Literally the very first verse of the New Covenant documents. Matthew 1 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, 
the son of Abraham. He's here. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the seed. As the promised new David, through his obedient death and resurrection, he brings about the new covenant promised in the Old Testament. Through faith in Christ, sins are forgiven, and we are given the Spirit of God who makes us obedient now from the heart. So think about these themes. Paul's already taught us in Ephesians that through Christ we've been raised up from the dead and brought together as God's new humanity. Ephesians 2. Remember that? He's already taught us now that we are the restored temple. Again, Ephesians 2. Where God's presence resides on earth and where God's glory is displayed. And, as God's renewed people, we will again be fruitful and multiply, but this time in conversions, because it does not matter how many children I have because they're all snakes. What matters, yes, Colin, Eleanor, and Juliet are snakes, as was I and my wife. What matters now is regeneration, the renewal of the image of God in man through faith in Christ. It doesn't matter, on the one hand, like how many children I have. It matters, are they regenerate? I mean, I shouldn't say it doesn't matter. It does matter. But the fundamental issue is their regeneration. And so, the book of Acts uses the very same concepts of fruitfulness and multiplication, the same terms of Genesis 1 and 2, for the expansion of the church. I'll give you the references on that later. The worldwide dominion of Christ is happening as the Word of God conquers different peoples, as churches are planted, and as the earth is colonized for Christ. And just like Genesis 3 predicted, this is where we're getting to the collective offspring, the people, it's happening right in the midst of conflict and suffering. The children of the snake are still at enmity with the renewed children of the woman, the church, and the great irony is that this is precisely how Jesus' reign extends, is through suffering, just like his reign extended through suffering. His reign extends covertly and counterintuitively through this difficulty until he comes again to put all things under his feet. And this will culminate in a new and more glorious creation in the realization of an everlasting kingdom, says Daniel, that cannot be destroyed. Because the one like a son of man who goes up to the Ancient of Days is given dominion. He's given dominion. This is God's original creation charter on steroids. His original purpose for humanity will be finally realized in the new creation. And you'll notice Revelation 21 and 22 parallel Genesis 1 and 2. It's a glorious book. But the surprise in all of this is that the creation doesn't come all at once. I'm going to tie it up here. It doesn't come all at once, the new creation. The new creation begins, it's inaugurated at the coming or the resurrection of Christ. And then it will be fully realized at the return of Christ. I was building this whole lesson up to this point, so don't miss this, okay? There's a lot of data. Don't tune out now. We could say it like this. The new creation is breaking in right now into the old creation. So I even gave you a really fancy diagram for this. I'm going to call this next step the mission in between. There's the old creation. There's the new. 
Did you catch that? Old, new. And here's where we are. In the overlap of creations. Or the overlap of the ages. So the new creation is breaking into the old in, right in the middle of it. As people come to Christ, as churches are formed, as the glory of God resides on His people, as they die to see that continue to happen. The new creation is, is coming and invading. There's an overlap. So that means there's the mission in between, is what I just said. Understanding that we currently are living in the overlap of the ages, so to speak, is important as we think about what the New Testament authors teach about marriage. Okay? Drawing it together. According to Jesus, marriage is not part of the new creation. Matthew 22.30, Mark 12.25, Luke 20.35. Marriage is not part of the new creation. Marriage is part of the original creation. It's not bad. It's part of the original creation. And according to Paul, it was designed mysteriously, they didn't know this in Genesis 1 and 2, but it was designed mysteriously to point to something greater to reflect the glory of Christ's relationship to his church. Ephesians 5.32, we're going to get there. So, while we cherish marriage, while we celebrate marriage, we realize it is not eternal. Mary, my wife, will not always be my wife. As crazy as that is to think about. But she will always be my sister. That's why Paul can extol the gift of singleness in the New Covenant. Because you aren't shelved, if you're single, from fulfilling God's mission of making disciples in and through the church. You follow? So you might be thinking, well, if we're living in the beginnings of the new creation or the inbreaking of it, should we just abandon marriage altogether for the single life so that we can be more singularly devoted to Christ? Good question. Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians 7. Okay, we're not going to go there, but that's what the New Testament church asked. And in fact, they were going way beyond what Paul said, so Paul had to counsel them off the ledge. So the answer, should you do that, maybe. It depends on your gifting and your desires, Paul would say. Remember, the new creation isn't completely here. Remember the overlap? It's not here, and it's only going to come in its fullness when Christ returns. So that means, I think Paul would still say that marriage is the norm, even right now, in that overlap. Folks who are gifted for singleness, according to 1 Corinthians 7, are folks whose, whose desires for intimacy and marital companionship are weak or non-existent. Like they're either controllable and they want to control, like they don't want to experience the intimacy. Like that's that's the to me, that's the gift of singleness. That's what that he seems to be saying there in 1 Corinthians 7. I know that's an interesting passage, but they would much rather expend themselves for church ministry than a family. And they're not against one another. They're just saying they, they would rather do that. Meaning they would be they would rather be less constrained by family obligations like children or having to care for some other person so they could be more free in the sense of doing ministry kind of, un, I say untethered, but I mean untethered to a family responsibilities, which are good. Those are good things, but they're untethered from that. So that's, that's the idea. And that's like, but singleness in the Old Covenant was like a curse. Like you don't want to be single in the Old Covenant. But now it's changed. Why? Because the new creation is coming. And the issue is disciples. 
But the majority are going to have strong desires for companionship and intimacy, and, and this is good. This is great. So get married, okay? Marriage is a good gift from God, given to us to enjoy, even in this time between the ages. But God's going to use it still for his mission in different ways than the single person. This inbreaking of the new covenant, okay, last thing I'm going to say, has massive implications on how we think about marriage and family. Let me just give you a few of them and I'll stop here. This inbreaking of the new covenant that we're in right now, it shows us that marriage isn't focused on itself ultimately. It's always been focused on God's mission, and now his mission is centered in making disciples in and through the church. So your marriage has to have its focus on discipleship in and through the local church. Because that's the mission of God in its glorious fulfillment right now in the overlap of the ages. So this also means as you cultivate a rich biblical friendship with your spouse, your ultimate aim in that friendship is to make them a better follower of Christ, a better disciple. Through your humility, through your selfless sacrifice, through your patience, through your candor, your your constancy, Through all of that, your friendship to your spouse will result in greater sanctification and conformity to Christ. And each of you are going to help the other, if you're married, become a people who resemble the new creation. So that when your marriage fades, the image of God being restored in that person doesn't. Their Christ-likeness continues to escalate into the new creation, the very image of Christ. So that impacts how we think about our husbands and wives, you know, in that marriage relationship, it also impacts how we think about our kids. Bearing children isn't an end in itself either. It's very good, very important for married couples as they can, as wisdom permits, to have its goal as children. Again, could talk about that later. But, we, but what we do is not an end. I'm not just trying to fill up the earth, the creation mandate, with kids. Like, that's... It's okay as long as they're regenerate kids. Like, that's the point. We pray and labor for our own children to come to know the Messiah and become part of his people as we wait for his return. We don't idolize our children, but we labor to ultimately launch out these renewed image bearers into a world of darkness to further spread the glory of Jesus. I pray for my children in the words of Daniel that they would, they would shine like, like stars, like he says there, and you'd be used to turn many to righteousness. Like, it will break my heart not to have close fellowship with my kids in personal contact. But I pray that I won't hinder them from going and fulfilling the mission of God on the earth through making disciples and whatever their vocations are or callings. So in other words, our parenting is also focused on the mission of making disciples as we invest in evangelism of our kids and and in, in maturing them into Christ-likeness. But God gives that increase. I can't, I can't manufacture that. And, and finally, as a result, our very homes are transformed. Our families look outward on the needs of others. Our marriages are thoroughly committed to the church, the visible expression of His body in a specific location. And we seek to show hospitality to welcome others into the grace we've received so that more disciples are made and matured. Our individual homes become little microcosms of God's kingdom. 
little cells of the church. Others are welcomed in and they observe genuine kingdom life, genuine love, life that will one day characterize the new creation. And it's lived out in the closest and often most difficult relationship. And guys, I really think that if Paul were standing here, he would be telling you the same things. Because you know the flow of Ephesians, right? In Ephesians, where we're going to land is those instructions to husbands and wives, and children and parents, and slaves and masters. And it's all tethered to the new creation life. So he wants you to see this vision playing out in this mission, this glorious mission of marriage, which is simply the furtherance of God's disciple-making mission. That's all it is now in the New Covenant. So I'm sure that raised questions. (laughs) I'm getting longer and longer. I'm going to get fired before this is over. (laughs) So if that was my last one, that gives you an idea. Like, that just sort of pulls the windows back a little bit. If you see any, like, fire in my bones about these things, it's because this vision has set in, in my life, um, by God's grace, I was dead. And through the study of Scripture, this vision is, is setting in, this vision of marriage, and I, I commend it to you, and it's singleness again. <laughs> singleness is great, because you're still fulfilling the mission of God. So if you've got more questions, come talk to me. Um, next week, we're going to be diving back into Paul's instructions to wives, in particular, Ephesians 5. So everybody come, not just the girls, okay? Guys, you hear this too? Um, so I'm, I'm very excited. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would use this vision of your mission to stimulate us to greater faithfulness as we see who we are as your image bearers and what you've called us to in Christ. And we will praise you for the fruit um, as you do that in and among us, as you're already doing that, um, in and among this this group, could not be more privileged to serve and shepherd uh, folks like this. Thank you for the encouragement they are to me. We pray in Christ's name.